Don't move. You're listening to Harpy Hour. We just want to share another awesome podcast with you first. So check these guys out and stay tuned for this week's episode of Harpy Hour. Hi guys, Kira from Murder and More here. I am the solo host of the UK-based true crime podcast, where each Sunday I tell you about a murder, disappearance or serial killer. Murder and More is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts, including platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Murder and More, Instagram at Murder and More Pod, and on Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. Head over to murderandmorepodcast.wordpress.com to find out more. Harpy Hour may contain explicit language, as well as graphic, violence, and sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harpy Hour! Shalom! Aloha! We are the one and only, the three and only Harpy. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, your I favorites. Am, <laughs> I am the one and only Tracy. And I am the one and only Liz. And I am the one and only Steph. Woo. I like this. <laughs> and this is extra. the one and only podcast. Where we share, there's none other like it out there, where we it's share true. ridiculous yeah. stories in history, science, and entertainment. Can't get this anywhere else, folks. Not the quality. It's quality versus quantity. Yeah. One-stop shopping. Exactly. If you want to hear about poop and Disney in the same episode. <laughs> or Hollywood and goat balls. <laughs> then I feel like you've hit your You've come your to the right peak place. with us. Didn't one of our reviewers say really that we have. were like drunk history for people who have ADD? Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> so if that's you and that's what you're into. Mm-hmm. Aren't we all? We got you. I covered. mean, it's quarantine. Nobody has the capacity to like focus on one thing for more than the half hour that we are allotting for each segment. So, um, am I supposed to say a line? <laughs> yeah. God damn it, Steph! We literally just did this. <laughs> I know, like literally. Also, it's the twentieth like time we've done this. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why. It is the 20th time. Happy 20th. Andrew Jackson. Yep. I didn't understand that reference until I just said that. <laughs> oh my god. So, we just, we're doing two episodes back to back. We said there was going to be a 10 minute break between the segments. Steph violated the 10 minutes. I was a little bit late. The sanctity. So, last night, my boyfriend came over and I had made some bread. And... He went to go cut a piece of it and managed to cut himself. Cut. Did you yeah, just need, were you just stitching up? <laughs> no, I was not stitching him. <laughs> so he cut himself last oh. night. But he kind of like cut off a little piece of flesh so there's nothing to stitch, but he was oh. bleeding a lot. Oh. Yeah. Oh. 
I know Tracy's gonna love this story. So we just like, but how's the bread? I hate this. The bread was fun. The bread's great, actually. <laughs> it's beer bread. So instead of because you instead of using like yeast and making it rise and do all that proving and shit, yeah. you just like pour beer into the the dry ingredients, put it in the oven, and it's great. Okay, so back to his finger. But anyway, so we last night we like wrapped him up really tightly with gauze and duct tape because that's all that I had. I don't have medical tape here apparently can we just keep in mind that you are a pa and your boyfriend is in fact a doctor i was gonna say your doctor boyfriend continue so he's like oh my god i'm bleeding out from my finger i'm like you're gonna be fine so we just wrapped him up with gauze and tape because it's all we had and today we took it off to be like what's you know how's it doing and of course when we ripped the gauze off it started bleeding again well maybe don't rip it off Well, I didn't rip it off. I just took it off and it just started bleeding again. That's what was going on between episodes. He woke up and then we decided to check it out and it started bleeding again. So he's like putting pressure on it for like 30 seconds and checking. And I'm like, you you know, you need to do constant pressure. He's like, I'm going to keep doing the 30 seconds and check things. (laughs) So we ended ended up just wrapping it again just now with more gauze and duct tape to get it to stop bleeding. So I was doing... Minor surgery. Medical treatment. episodes. Yes. I mean, are we calling it surgery? <laughs> How many medical professionals does it Did take? Did you recommend gonads to him? Goat gonad? Uh, we don't have any on hand. <laughs> I hear it's a cure-all. I mean, if, if I'm going to go to the pharmacy to uh, probably get some better first aid materials, not goat balls. Two medical professionals, everyone. Yep. <laughs> This is going great. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the delay. My apologies. <laughs> Tracy, what are you going to talk about this week? Oh, well, this week, I'm so glad you asked, Steph, because I am going to talk about going around the world in 365 days. That sounds amazing. Right? I want to do a year-long travel Oh, my trip. God. Well, it's going to be years I mean, not, before you can. Yes, not right now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, prices are great right now, probably. It's going to take a long time because you have to like quarantine for two weeks everywhere you go before you can then actually go do things. It's not great. I don't think every country has that rule, do they? I don't know. But some you can't go to at all. So maybe it'll actually be really quick because there's nowhere you can go. (laughs) You're just circling. You just do a flight around the world because you can't land land anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Just see all the airports. So, so Liz, tell me more, tell me more about your segment this week. Oh my God. Well, I'm so glad that you sang it. You're welcome. Mine is called The Bottle Segment. Alternate title, My Tracy Segment. Yay! (laughs) It's a Tracy segment! Double Tracy. Oh God, no one needs that. So just... (laughs) Quick backstory. Um, so if you're all caught up on Harpy Hour and like listening in order, you probably know by now that sometimes there's some like topic thieving going on. Um, we're, we're all uh, <laughs> we're all perpetrators here and victims. Yeah, <laughs> but it's true. Also, we try to like when we come across things that we think is like appropriate for another Harpy, we recommend it. And this time, so I came across something and I was like, oh, this is such a Tracy segment. And so my instinct was to go to her and tell her about it. And I started to, 
instead. And then instead, I took it back because I realized I was really excited about it and I wanted to do it myself. So, so Liz is a cock tease. And- um, so yeah, I'm doing a Tracy segment um, called The Bottle Segment. Nice. And Steph, what are you going to do today? Well, speaking of topics suggested by other harpies, this one comes from Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Just paying it forward. I take a little, I give a little. I feel completely taken. I, I, I got nothing. <laughs> this is the worst. And uh, my topic is called Fly Me to the Moon. Ooh, ooh. ooh. I, I'm surprised you were doing this one so soon. Well, you kept asking, you asked me the other day, you're like, when are you going to do this topic? Because if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. I'm like, fine, I'll do well, it. No, Jeez. because God, what a bitch. You can't make it <laughs> no, back. Because it wasn't on the spreadsheet. And so the spreadsheet dictates like dibs on topics. And so I mentioned this. But I mean, to we her. had a private conversation where you said you should do this topic. And I said, I will do this topic. But yeah, but it wasn't on the spreadsheet. And I was getting like, I wanted it's implied dibs to either hear it more or to do the research myself. And so if you weren't going to be doing it, then I was going to call it. I told you I was going to do it. It just wasn't on the spreadsheet yet. Well, I'm excited. Inner harpy battle. (laughs) My segment, as I mentioned, was around the world in 365 days. And I figured that since we're all in quarantine and very sad, and the only thing that we can do is binge Netflix and eat Doritos, I decided to take us on a little travel journey throughout the world this week. I have a book. It's called Where to Travel When. Did you get that for your honeymoon planning? No, I got it for Christmas. (laughs) Where to travel when? 2020? Nowhere. (laughs) Travel from your living room to your kitchen. Where you going? Mm -hmm. Nowhere. It's accurate. Travel to your mailbox and backs. That is uh, quite the outing. (laughs) I got it for Christmas from my brother. Thanks, Tom. So I went through it and picked out some good ones. And not all of these come from that. And I did extensive more, like more research on this. So I'm not just stealing things. I'm really excited, you guys. According to the U.S. Travel Association, the travel industry in 2020 The losses related to COVID-19 will result in a GDP impact of $1.2 trillion. So a loss of $1.2 trillion. Yes, that is a loss of $1.2 trillion. To put that in perspective, here's what you could buy with $1.2 trillion. (laughs) You could buy the Miami Marlins professional baseball team 1,000 times. I was going to say, they can't cost (laughs) any more than a trillion dollars. 1,000 times. You could buy a million-dollar apartment for every person in San Francisco. What? Mm -hmm. Don't they all, like, aren't they all already a million-dollar apartments? San Francisco. We're talking about a trillion, though. Yeah, but it'd be like owning the city of San Francisco. (laughs) Or... It's all of the U.S. currency in circulation in the year 2013. Wow. Wow. The entire currency. Damn. I went through all of these different countries, and I wanted to give you a little taste of the culture as well. So I decided to look up an important phrase in each language. And when I started to think (laughs) of important phrases, I decided the most important one for us is, I'm sorry, I'm American. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have looked up that sentence in every language, except for one where I found a better one. So really, this is like 2021 that you can be traveling starting in January. (laughs) I mean, maybe. So just remember that. Also, I apologize in advance for offending every culture I talk about with my pronunciation of their native tongue. I think 2021 January is a little ambitious for traveling the world. It could start 2021 December 30th. Yeah, that's probably more realistic. (laughs) (laughs) January 2021. (laughs) Tromso, Norway. So in Norwegian, the you can say I'm sorry I'm American like this. Beklager, Jager Amerikansk. Why is it so aggressive? It's just Tracy's take on it. Yep. Yep, that's what it made me feel. Okay, so that's but what wait, we're doing. no, do it again more apologetically, though. Big lager, Jago American. <laughs> I like that. I think that's. I have nothing to base this on because I don't know Norwegian. We have nothing but that to do with seems this. Seems really authentic. Yep. For January in Norway, this is an ideal time to see the Northern Lights. AKA Aurora Borealis. Actually, it is a good time to wait until like January 2024 or 2025 because, and let me tell you, solar flares. I'm going huh. to do a little scientisting. Are you ready? Here we go. Not ready. So we're entering a solar maximum swing. 2020 was the solar minimum. It will only get easier to see the Northern Lights each year until we hit the next swing at 2024 or 2025. So it's an 11 year cycle. And the peak of the 11-year cycle is marked by an increase or a decrease in sunspots. The increase in sunspots, which will happen in 2024 or 2025, you know, it varies. The increased sunspots are actually increased outbursts of solar particles, which means it is easier to see the aurora borealis. I actually find that very useful, and I am going to utilize that for planning. My roommate and I, a few years ago, went to Iceland. And we went in October, which is kind of like the in-between, like it's not really peak Mm -hmm. season, but it's also not like the worst time to go. Like, it's just kind of like an average solar time. And we were there for a week and I never, we literally drove around the entire island of Iceland Mm -hmm. over the course of a week and never saw the goddamn Northern Lights. And I'm still traumatized. I saw the Northern Lights in February of 2017. And it was amazing. And I highly recommend it. I have not seen them, so now I will know how to plan. There you go. So 2024, 2025, we'll know more when it gets closer. Moving on to February. Venice, Italy. Okay, so this is the only one that I know actually how to say it. So (laughs) in Italian, it's Mi dispiace, sono americana. Americana because I am a woman. You're not forgiven. Beautiful. Okay. (laughs) I mean, probably not, let's be honest. So in February, you can go to Venice for Carnivale. It's one of the most famous celebrations of Mardi Gras in the world because of the Venetian masks. 
Oh, I didn't know that was like a winter thing. Yeah, it's on Mardi Gras, which is the day before Ash Wednesday, which is 40 days before Easter. Masks originally developed as a reaction to the class hierarchies and like the sumptuary laws, which regulated consumption by societal class. So during Carnivale, the sumptuary laws are suspended. So the masks prevented you from being recognized and therefore discriminated against throughout the festival. Mm. So it's like eat, drink and do whatever you want. Nobody knows who you are, so we can't penalize you. There are some notable masks at Carnivale. There were several different types, but I picked the ones that I thought were most notable. One of them is volto, which means face in Italian. That's like the most common. (laughs) Yes, that's the most common, like traditional one that completely covers the face. It's worn very tightly on the face. So like when you Google Venetian mask, like that's the one that's going to come up. You hold it with the baton, but it's like the full face version, not just the eye version. There is also one called Medico delle Peste, which means plague doctor. Oh, and nice. it looks just like the plague doctor mask. And only men were allowed to wear this mask until recently because hashtag patriarchy. How do they govern? Like if the whole point was like not to discriminate and stuff, how are, do they enforce that women can't wear the masks? I assume boobies. I don't know. But is that like illegal enforcement? Like who's? How I just don't understand. Maybe it's like on your honor or something. If it's just a, if it's a festival and the whole thing's like, if she were to fully dress like a man in men's clothing and like not have obvious boobies, then she probably could get away with it. And who's gonna know? Yeah, I mean, it it might be a Mulan situation. I'm not sure. Unrelated side note: I saw like a meme or tweet recently where somebody was like, "If you think that wearing like a mask in public makes you look weak." Because people are using that as an excuse not to wear sure. masks. So if you think wearing a mask in public makes you look weak, maybe try wearing something that will hide your identity, like a mask. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Nice. Keep your germs to yourself. And then the last type that I covered was serveta muta, which means mute servant woman. And it's one where the wearer bites down on like a bit to hold the mask in place. So Mm. you literally could not talk. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's like a female version. of, Of course it is. Yeah. Don't let the ladies talk. No, you don't need to. So there's that. So you should go. Everyone's drinking and having festivals and all kinds of stuff during Carnivale. I went to Carnivale when I was studying abroad and it was incredible. And you should all go. March. You should go to Ningaloo, Australia. So in Australia, here's how you say, I'm sorry, I'm American. It goes, sorry, mate, I'm a seppo. (laughs) (laughs) Seppo is a derogatory term for American in Australian slang that comes from the word septic tank. Oh, oh, Mm -hmm. well done, Australians. Yep. (laughs) So that's what you would say. So the reason that you would go to Ningaloo, Australia in March is because that is the coral spawning season in the Ningaloo Reef. Hmm. Here's how it works. Seven to 10 days after the full moon in March. So it's based on like a lunar calendar. Coral simultaneously releases its gametes, eggs and sperm, into the Indian Ocean over the span of like 15 minutes or so. So there's like a tiny 15 minute window and the gametes float to the top of the water, seeking to fertilize and create an embryo. 
Once they are fertilized, the embryos drop to the ocean floor to grow and mature into new reef. So the result, according to the National Ocean Service, is, quote, an underwater blizzard with billions of colorful flakes cascading in white, yellow, orange, and red. Ooh. Bonus, coral spawning attracts krill and plankton, which in turn attracts whale sharks to feed every year. I want to see the whale sharks. They're the largest fish in the world. They can be, or the largest predator, like shark predator type thing. They can be up to 33 feet long and 41,000 pounds. Ooh, I didn't realize they're that big. Yup. That's just like a pretty cool phenomenon that only happens at that point in the year. Moving on. April. Kyoto, Japan, or really all of Japan. Cherry blossoms. Yep. In Japanese, it is Gomenasai, America Hatisadusu. Tried it. <laughs> Crushed it. That's exact. That is phonetically correct, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so as you guessed, it is cherry blossom season. It illustrates the Japanese concept of mono no aware, which translates to nothing lasts forever. Oh. The blossoms themselves are known locally as sakura. The act of cherry blossom viewing is known as hanami. So like you do hanami to see the sakura. And it happens during Golden Week, typically, like the festivals. Golden Week is the end of April and the first week of May. It starts with Shoah Day on April 29th and ends with Children's Day on May 5th. The dates that the people have off shift from year to year, depending on when those holidays fall. It's a holiday? Like they don't work? Yes. Yes. Showa Day honors the birthday of Emperor Showa, who reigned from 1926 to 1989. And Children's Day is about respecting children's personalities and celebrating their happiness. Oh, I like that. Nobody did that for me when I was a child. Just saying. (laughs) It's also the busiest time for travel in Japan. Like the locals are traveling to see each other because it's like, you know, Christmas when everyone has time off. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. So how to celebrate. Locals camp out overnight to get the best picnic spots under the blossoms and they bring like extravagant meals. Like people like cater these meals under the trees. And there's lots of sake. So much sake. May. You should go to Bali, Indonesia, which... Full disclosure, Craig and I are thinking of going to Bali for our honeymoon. So this really doubled. (laughs) Not in May. So this really doubled as like my education on (laughs) what we should do for our honeymoon. In Indonesian, it is Moth Sayorang America. Nailed it. Nailed it. So it's the dry season in May. The average is 84 degrees Fahrenheit like during the day. Beautiful. No major holidays on the horizon during May. So the pricing is like really good because there isn't like an influx of tourism yet because there are no like real holidays. And so what to do in Bali during this time? Again, this is basically my honeymoon itinerary. (laughs) See the cliffside temple of Uluwatu or visit the rice terraces. Lay on the beaches. The beaches are like pristine and amazing. Swing over the waterfalls. They have those big swings. Mm, That sounds awesome. Hike an active volcano like Mount Batur. Go on a yoga or meditation retreat or visit the sacred monkey forest, which is very high on my list. I want to do all of those things. 
Yes. Right? Yes, please. I'm so stoked. When travel opens up again, that is now high on my list. I think I'm just going to refer back to this podcast, <laughs> this episode. I think you should, I'll send you my notes. I mean, the notes are on the drive. They are, yeah. Maybe I'll just look at, back to your notes. You probably travel should. opens up again. Just the notes are on the drive. I think I'm going yes. to take like all of the leave that I haven't been using because I can't vacation this year and just take right. like at least a month off. Like, yeah. just all at once to piece the fuck out and travel Knock around. a few of these things off. I like it. I'm coming with you. <laughs> okay, cool. Harpy trip. Yes. All right. We'll, we'll circle back to that. <laughs> June, you should go to Iceland. In Icelandic. Oh, God. Not if you want to see the Northern Lights. I agree, but you already went to Norway in January, so. I suppose. Okay. In Icelandic, you can say, Firagufu. Egger Amagriksker. Yep. Sure. There's 24 hour sunlight around the summer solstice in West Fjords and North Iceland. So that's like late May to late July. It's basically 24 hours. Uh, the summer solstice falls on June 21st. So well, I got to say, when I was in Scandinavia at this time of year, we went, my friends and I went to Norway, Copenhagen, and Sweden, and where the sun is around. Mm -hmm. most of the day it's not all day long it's not 24 hours at this point but like the sun would be out until like 10 30 11 or something like that so it was kind of confusing because yeah, i would imagine it's disorienting yeah it is a little bit because like we would think like oh there's so much sunlight out like it must be dinner time we'd go to like a restaurant and like oh we're closed it's like nine o'clock we're like oh shit we didn't realize it was that late yeah even yeah. just in alaska so i did alaska right in, like the middle of the summer and so there was only four hours of nighttime like the sun set at like yeah, midnight like i was at the park at midnight watching the sun go down and then it came back up at like four and so it gives you this illusion that there's yeah. so much that you can do during the day Things like things still close. have normal business hours. Right. And so exactly. you're like, oh, like, also, I, yeah, I want to go to somewhere at 11 and have a nice just like rooftop cocktail. And they're like, no, what are you doing? You can't. It's late. Yeah. Go to bed. And then also, yeah, would, the sun would come back up at like four o'clock in the morning. And only one of the places we stayed at had blackout curtains. So like one of them just had literally just shears. Like you yeah. could see through them. So the sun would come nope. up at four o'clock in the morning and just blaring me awake. It was frustrating because i couldn't sleep well i have adopted a sleep mask as of late and it's great one of the hotels in alaska had like blackout curtains and they velcroed to the walls to like seal every corner of them nice. Nice. it was amazing but i also stayed like at a different point in my stay i stayed on a bus that was converted into like a studio apartment it was like a city of fairbanks school bus that was converted and that just had like linen curtains and that yeah. was a struggle. Pass. <laughs> mm -hmm. Summer months are also the time of puffin migration. Ooh. So you can see the puffins on the coast. You have to go north, I think, though. Like the northern part. They of just Iceland. said the coast. Yeah. North is more so like, like North Iceland and West Fjords. Yeah. That was more of the like 24-hour thing. And then June 17th is National Icelandic Day. Ooh. Where they celebrate Iceland's independence from Denmark. And there's a parade down Lagavigar Street in Reykjavik. And it's traditionally celebrated with cotton candy and ice cream. Fuck yeah. Can't remember the last time I've eaten cotton candy. It doesn't really do anything for me. Oh, I love ice cream. Ice cream is like the my favorite cream, thing. Yeah, yeah oh. ice cream calls to me there. Oh, yes. Let's finish this up so that I can eat ice cream. <laughs> July, Provence, France. 
So in French, it is je suis désolé, je suis American. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was right. Yep. You may have guessed it's the lavender fields. I would not I have not. guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Early July, the lavender is in full bloom and you'll miss all the French locals because they usually wait until school is out in mid-July. So, and mid-July is also harvest time for the lavender fields. So like you want to see all of that. So the best fields are Balensole Plateau, Salt Plateau, and the Luberon Valley. And these villages host a rotating lavender festival each Sunday throughout July. And several lavender museums and shops are open and available for you to buy like cosmetics, lavender flavored food, essential oils. And there are also workshops throughout the region during the summer that allow you to make your own lavender sachets, lavender candles, or even lavender scented paintings. Ooh. That's I interesting. Know. Weird. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't Scratch think of that. Sniff paintings. Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope they would just like sort of like radiate lavender aromatics so that I don't have to scratch my painting. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's not a good business model. (laughs) August, you should go to Edinburgh, Scotland. In Scottish Gaelic, oh God, it is (laughs) Thami Duolik, Thami Amirganash. Sure. (laughs) Thanks, Google Translate. For this, it's the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. What does that mean? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> is Fringe is this is this acting? It is. Ooh, Started in 1947 when a group of theater troops turned up uninvited to the Edinburgh International Festival and started to perform, quote, on the fringe. So now it's grown to be the single largest creative arts event in the world. It's a theater festival that has a distinct street element to it. So usually each company slash show advertises along the Golden Mile, which is like literally just a giant street. They try to pull people into their performances or convince people to come to their show. So it's like a guerrilla marketing kind of thing. There's a carnival atmosphere. They advertise low prices for each performance so that the arts are accessible to everyone. Groups from all over the world travel to perform, including high school, college, and community groups. Full disclosure. You went. I performed at the Fringe Festival. I was going to say, I think I remember this. Now that you've talked about it, I remember you did that. That's how I met my college boyfriend. Uh, Yeah. True story. May he rest in peace. R.I.P. He's not dead. He's not really dead. Just our relationship. (laughs) Just Just our relationship is dead. One of my goals is to go back to the Fringe Festival and just like soak it all in and not have like the performance responsibilities and just go and enjoy it. That's something I really want to do. And you should all do it. September, Galway, Ireland. In Irish, it is Tabron Orm is Merikanakme. Cool. This is the Galway International Oyster and Seafood Festival. So I knew nothing about this, and now I really want to go, even though I can't eat seafood. Why can't you eat seafood? I'm allergic. <laughs> what is new information to I've me? literally what, told I you guys this. I have seen you eat shrimp, no? Yeah, that's a shellfish that's, that's separate. So It's like oh. the fishy fish. It's the oh. way that they process mercury. Huh. I yeah. don't think I knew that. I thought you just didn't like fish. 
No. It's the way that they process mercury and iodine. Because I have an iodine sensitivity. Interesting. Yep. True story. <laughs> I um, can't believe neither of us knew that. You guys would have been feeding me shit that it would kill me. <laughs> God damn it. Salmon? Aren't you offering salmon at your wedding? No. Oh. oh, no, there is going to be a sit. No, there is going to be a salmon, but I'm obviously not. It's it's buffet. So I just am not going to touch the buffet. I'm not I can be in the room with it. I just <laughs> shouldn't eat it. It's not aerosolized. <laughs> yeah, like I can be around it. I just can't eat it. Oh, that's hilarious. Aerosolized fish. <laughs> okay. Also, I think buffets like aren't going to be a thing anymore. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> they haven't Just said anything fact. to me. I mean, I'm not planning on like hacking into my food, but like still. World Oyster Opening Championship is at this festival. You're judged on speed, technique. I was going to say oyster shucking. It's not nope, that's what it's called. Opening. I pulled it right from the website. That's what it's called. Okay. Well, that's silly. You shuck an oyster. You don't open it. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, shucks. I hate you. <laughs> Judged on speed, <laughs> technique, and presentation. It's 80 euro tickets will get you admission, one drink, a half dozen oysters, and two seafood tasting plates. Pretty good price, nice. actually. And a funeral for Tracy. Exactly. I can have shellfish. I just can't have, like, fish The fish. seafood plate that they give you. Correct. I imagine that would encompass, like, all of the seafood groups. I can eat the shrimp on it mardi gras gala dinner this is a, such a good idea and i don't know why people don't do this so each course takes place in a different venue around the city so it's like a tourism thing and it's known as a roving feast at 8 p.m there's a welcome reception and that's at the first venue at 9 p.m there's a starter course at venue number two and then at 10 p.m there's dinner, dessert, a buffet, and Irish coffees at the Festival Marquee, which is the third and final venue. So that's 120 euros, and that gets you a glass of bubbles, a complimentary oyster, three-course dinner with wine, and then tea, dessert, and Irish coffee at the final destination. Mm. Yes. yes. And then there's this thing called Filet Biennamara, Nailed it. That's the final day. It's a laid back like carnival atmosphere with face painting and puppets and cooking demos with national and local chefs. And that is a free event just to like close out the festival. October. You should go to Botswana. Where's that? It's in Africa. Oh, okay. for this one, they have a couple like indigenous languages. And so I tried to get I tried for like a long time to get a correct translation into Setswana, which is their language. So instead, I decided to use their suggested phrases you needed to know. And in that was, why is there a hyena in my tent? Why indeed? That's the phrase. Is that what you're going to be shouting when there's a hyena in your tent? Yeah, apparently. And here's how you say it in the native tongue. K-ang- Firi e le mo tante yame. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Yep. So you go there for safaris and wildlife viewing. So 
the conservation efforts there are so successful, like in that region, that South Africa sends their endangered rhinos to Botswana because there's just so much regulation that like these animals thrive. So the government's, quote, low impact, high experience, unquote, mandate means that camps are much more intimate and less competitive for like viewing the animals. Well, that's why there is a hyena in your tent. Yeah. <laughs> So tourism tails off in October, specifically because the heat is getting like much higher. It is highs of 95 degrees Fahrenheit, lows of 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The prices drop because of the low demand. So you can probably get like amazing deals. And the Okavango wetland region has been eaten over the dry winter at this time of year. So the game viewing is like at its peak. Because it because all the vegetation all of the vegetation is gone, so all of the vegetarians are gone. So it's just the like lions and shit. But you have to be able to take the heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you can stomach the heat, like there's good prices and good viewing. So so man up, suck it up. What's the humidity like? That's the important factor. Is it a dry heat? I did not find information <laughs> on the humidity, but you are in a wetland region. So that I feel sounds, like that's yeah. not, that doesn't bode well. So humid. Yes. November, Chiang Mai, Thailand. Oh, I was in Chiang Mai in November. Not this past November, but when I went, it was November. It was great. Here's how you say this in Thai, and this will be my perfect pronunciation. Chan, Exos, Chan, Pen, American. That was the worst of everything. I think done. that was. <laughs> there are too many consonants. There were no vowels in some of those words. There are no vowels. I don't think that was even close. I'm sorry to everyone who's Thai. I'm sorry. <laughs> in November, that is the time that Yi Peng occurs, aka the Lantern Festival. I went to that. It was so cool. Yeah, so it's celebrated on the full moon of the 12th lunar month each year, which is considered to be the Thai New Year. So it usually falls about mid-November, you know, depending on the lunar cycle. Mm -hmm. Based on the time when locals believe that the rivers are at their fullest and the moon is at its brightest. So participants, quote, make merit, that's the verb they use, by releasing thousands of floating lanterns into the sky with their wishes for the new year and letting go of their ills from the previous year. So the best spot to participate is Mayjo University at 6.30 p.m. local time. That is their suggestion. Finally, December, Helsinki, Finland. Hmm. So in Finnish, it is Olin Paholani Olen America Lenin. Awesome. Yep. So <laughs> we're going to talk about Rova Niemi, a.k.a. the home of Santa Claus. Ooh. It's just north of the Arctic Circle. The history is that Santa, who is referred to as the Yule Goat locally, can't escape the goats, guys. Yule Goat. <laughs> Based on the Norse god Odin, from whom Santa Claus is said to have originated. So, in 1927, a Finnish radio broadcaster announced that Santa's workshop had been discovered in, like, this region, where the wild reindeer were found grazing, like, naturally and in the wild. So, in 1950, so this is after World War II, the Arctic cabin was hastily built 
when Eleanor Roosevelt came to visit post-war, and it's still part of Santa's village like today. In 1984, to promote tourism and save its economy, Rovaniemi was officially declared Santa Claus land. So what you can do in Rovaniemi is visit with Santa Claus, feed and ride the reindeer. This is the one that I think is cool. Send a wish list to Santa with an Arctic Circle postmark on it. Oh, well, that seems kind of like you don't get to keep that. So this like the uniqueness of having that postage stamp goes away when you put it in the mail. Thanks for ruining everything. <laughs> Liz ruins Christmas. Liz ruined Christmas. <laughs> Jeez. But I mean, good for you. <laughs> Fuck you, Liz. So in conclusion, I have a quote from Mark Twain, which is, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. I agree. And that's my segment. All right, guys, this is the most buzzed I've been for a segment in a while. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, to give you some context, I put my glasses on. <laughs> All right. Oh, no. Let's get it together. <laughs> this is going down. This is going to be great. <laughs> All right. The bottle segment. Tracy segment. Yeah. Subtitle the Tracy segment. I'm going to be talking about bottle episodes, which is a specific format of television show production. Okay. A bottle episode is an episode in a TV series that is produced cheaply. It is usually restricted in scope to as few cast members as possible. So, like, only having, like, bare minimum number of people on set. Mm -hmm. Quarantine episodes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Having no special effects, because that costs money. Sure. And usually using only one set. So you're not moving between sets or locations because that also costs money. Okay. So typically the set is something that is already like a main set for the show. You wouldn't Mm -hmm. typically do a bottle episode like off site, like on location Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or um, somewhere that you don't already have a set for because that kind of goes against the principle of producing it cheaply if you are building something new just for this episode. Mm -hmm. And it also consists largely of dialogue because, you know, these scenes or these episodes don't have a lot of, like, if you're not moving between locations or things like that, like, there's not a lot of action that fills time. If you're in one place, then the only thing that fills time is dialogue. So they're usually very dialogue intensive as opposed to Mm -hmm. having any sort of action scenes, which could be costly. Okay. So, you know, there's no, like, getting in the car and driving to the restaurant or, like, a plane sure. taking off and landing. Like, oh, those that things to fill happen. it in, yeah. Yeah. So those are the, like, common characteristics of a bottle episode. And the term comes from a producer, Leslie Stevens, who worked on a television show from the 60s called The Utter Limits, which I never heard of. Me either. Mm-mm. But uh, Leslie described the bottle show as something that uses very little time to put together and costs very little money, quote, as in pulling an episode right out of a bottle like a genie. Interesting. So in some cases, they're also called like genie bottle episodes or segments. 
So it's just like poof, like out of thin air, you're putting this episode together. So the motivations for doing a bottle episode vary, but because one of the primary elements is to produce it cheaply, it's usually your budget that is a Mm -hmm. restrictive element. So especially in say that. Yeah. In um, episodic television, especially like sitcoms where you have like 20 plus episodes a season that you're like contracted to, you might put in a lot of your money for like really flashy season premieres and finales Mm -hmm. or on guest celebrities and cameos. And so in the middle, you kind of have to like get some filler. And mm-hmm. so you have to put in a few episodes that maybe aren't as fancy or require as much money as like the big episodes. Okay. So expenses are traditionally what drives a producer or like a network to make a bottle episode for one of their shows. Okay. It can also happen when a script has fallen through. Um, so that could be like maybe you wrote a script for a guest celebrity that's no longer like they dropped out and they're not going to be available anymore, or mm-hmm. you couldn't get a permit for like a location. Some that you last minute to change film. happens, yeah, yeah, like something mm-hmm. happens last minute and your initial script falls apart, and mm-hmm. so you're but like you still have cast that's showing up, and like you need to put something together. So you kind of like last minute throw this thing together. Okay. So those are the sort of traditional reasons why you would do a bottle episode. Scott Brazil. This also might be pronounced Brazil. I knew somebody in college that had that last name and it was Brazil, even though it's spelled like Brazil. the American way you say Brazil. But so hmm. Scott was the executive producer of The Shield and he describes bottle episodes as, quote, the sad little stepchild whose allowance is docked in order oh. to buy Big Brother a new pair of sneaks. Oh. <laughs> Oh, baby. <laughs> so historically, like they just don't really have great reputations because they're known for being like cheaply put together and being sure. filler, essentially. So they're kind of like throwaway episodes. You know, you've you've got to put together 20 episodes that can't all be gems. It happens. <laughs> you win some, you lose some, so, essentially. Yeah. But the bottle episode has evolved over time. So even though it was traditionally put together for things like budgetary reasons, a lot of showrunners now will intentionally find a way to do a bottle episode for the creative challenge it poses. So they'll do a bottle episode that maybe doesn't have a restrictive budget, but it checks off all the other boxes, such as using few cast members, having no special effects, only using one set, all those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. so that poses a creative challenge. So if they can do something that resembles a bottle episode but is done really well then that's considered like a success and so sometimes they do it on purpose to see what they can achieve from it okay make it more like artistic meaningful exactly yeah yeah it's like a quest yeah and there are definitely benefits if you do do it well bottle episodes can create a powerful dramatic effect especially because it's dialogue heavy and it's really narrow in like your location. It allows you to like really focus on character depth and development. Yeah, I was gonna say you could probably move the storyline really effectively in one of those. Yeah. Like I said, it's also just like sometimes people will just do it for the sake of doing it. It's kind of like having an Easter egg. So I, you, mm. I don't know if you've ever seen 
a show or an episode of something on TV and you might notice that like they haven't gone anywhere Mm -hmm. or you might notice that like there are certain characters that you didn't see at all in the entire episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of becomes like a, an Easter egg where at the end of the episode you realize, huh, that was a bottle episode. And so it's just kind of like a game that you play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's also an overlapping TV trope called the clip show. Which I think is like the laziest of all. Oh, episodes. I used to remember those from sitcoms. They would just be like, "Remember that time when, or whatever." They just, oh, I hate those. I That's hate exactly those. what that is, and they still do that. And they would just show clips from old episodes. It's it's like a flashback, but it's stupid. Yeah, so there's like five minutes of actual new filming, right. and then it's all just flashbacks. I hate those episodes. Exactly. So that's a specific type of bottle episode because to film it. They just like shove all the main characters around a coffee table and they just like film 10 minutes of them reflecting on things right. and then they play old clips. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. So I those are terrible. That. And they still happen, like especially for long running sitcoms that are in their like last seasons. They'll always do those kinds of flashback. It's so annoying. Nobody likes those. Literally yeah. no one. So that's like the worst kind of bottle episode you could do. But there are a bunch that are really great. Okay. So another feature of the bottle episode, which I really like, and this is also not a requirement, but it's common, is that bottle episodes are filled in real time. Okay. And so that those kind of like doing a bottle episode, because you only have one set, it kind of goes hand in hand that the episode timing is realistic because you don't have to travel in between sets. So everything that occurs in that episode happens on a realistic time frame. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So examples. There are like tons of bottle episodes in, in all sorts of shows. And I tried to pick out just a few that really like exemplify the standard or that are really like noteworthy because of how they're critically acclaimed and stuff like that. Okay. And I personally haven't seen every single one of these, but I wanted to highlight some of them because of how they were received by audiences and the media industry. Cool, cool, cool. The first one is from Seinfeld, from season two, called The Chinese Restaurant. I don't remember this episode offhand, but I might have seen it. Yeah, maybe when I describe it, it might sound familiar. But so this is an example of an episode that's set in real time. And it features a limited cast on one set. There are extra people as background, but it's still widely regarded to be a bottle episode because it only uses a few primary characters. Mm -hmm. So it features Jerry, Elaine, and George are waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant. And basically, they are hangry. And so while they're waiting, so they're waiting for half an hour because that's the length of the episode. And while they're waiting, they're trying to like bribe the host for a table. They're trying to buy egg roll appetizers off of other people's tables. Nice. I remember this episode now. And like, they're basically just like getting into shenanigans until they get so tired of waiting that they all just leave. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's, that's the episode. I remember and that one. <laughs> there are, as I mentioned, the three main cast, Jerry, Elaine, and George. But there are a few additional extras. So there's the host. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of people that are on the phone that George has an interaction with because he wants to call somebody. Okay. But other than that, the whole thing is on one location, the restaurant, and it's filmed in real time. 
NBC executives initially objected to the production broadcast because they thought that the episode lacked an involved storyline, which is just like, I, I mean, don't that's know, what Seinfeld. Seinfeld is. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. literally, it's the show about nothing. Like, I don't right. know what you expect. But they thought that audiences would be uninterested and Larry David threatened to quit if the network changed anything about, like, the episode or the script. So he eventually got what he wanted. Nice. But, and it turned out to be a classic, and it, quote, broke new ground for both the show and for sitcoms, like, as a whole. Hmm. And it's also notable that it's one of the only two episodes that doesn't have Kramer. I was oh. going to say, where's Kramer in that? Yeah. So this is season two, at which point Kramer, his character, uh-huh. doesn't leave the apartment. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. So it would have been out of character for, for him, him to be to, sure, 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 sure. to the restaurant with them. Right. But the actor who plays him obviously is bitter about this because it was such a groundbreaking episode and for he's the not show part and of for it. sitcoms, and he didn't get to be part of it. Yeah. So he's talked about that in interviews and stuff, how he was basically like bomoing oh, for mm-hmm. that. I um, get it. it. It was a while before they had his character do scenes outside of the apartment. Mm hmm. My next example is from West Wing, and this is something I love West Wing. Oh my god! But I've seen every episode. (laughs) Even just reading this, like, made me really emotional. The third season of West Wing was supposed to premiere in the fall of 2011, but it got postponed because of the tragic events of September 11th. I'm sorry, 2001. I said 2001. I was going to say that is not right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I had the 11 from September 11th swapped in there. Um, So it was supposed to premiere in the fall of 2001, but Mm -hmm. was delayed because of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Sure. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a show that's about like politics Mm -hmm. and the role that the presidency has in like American culture and everything Mm -hmm. like that. So they wanted to find a way to acknowledge Right. The tragedy that happened and like honor all of the people that were lost in it. Mm -hmm. So they delayed the premiere and they quickly threw together a bottle episode. Gotcha. And so it's not considered to be the premiere episode of the season. It's considered to be a special episode to kind of set up for the premiere. Okay. So it's called a special episode and it, the name is Isaac and Ishmael and it focuses on the cast in the White House mess hall. So they're basically just like all having lunch together. Mm-hmm. And they're, the characters are exploring the motivations and nuances of terrorism. So they're in character, mm-hmm. but through their dialogue together as they talk about like why this kind of stuff happens, they also like honor mm-hmm. the victims and the first responders. So it was the show's way of staying in character while also being really, like, meaningful and impactful. I really like that. Their yeah. things and the message that they sent. That's very cool. Yeah, so they also did it, it... None of the bottle episodes that I'll talk about check off every single box. Sure. But because they do, like, a majority, they're, they get, like, the credit for being a bottle episode. So the only thing that this didn't have was, like, a limited cast because they're in a mess hall. It had, like... Oh, sure. A larger ensemble of like background characters, but it was like in real time on one set and it was just like very focused on the depth of the characters through their dialogue. So that was a very notable um, bottle episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
to switch gears pretty significantly, I'll jump to Friends. Yay. Nice. (laughs) I love Friends. They did a lot of bottle episodes, but I'll focus primarily on the first one that they did, which is from season three, and it's the one where no one's ready. I I love that one. one. (laughs) Could I be wearing any more clothes? Exactly. (laughs) So this is the one where everybody's getting ready to go to a function for Ross. So it all takes place in Monica and Rachel's apartment as everybody's getting ready. And Joey puts on all of Chandler's clothes. Mm -hmm. So good. Because... Mm -hmm. Wasn't it because Chandler like hid his underwear or took his underwear? Yeah, Chandler took his underwear, isn't it? Yeah, so he hid, like Chandler hid Joey's clothes. So the logical response was for Joey to put on all of Chandler's clothes. I'm going to do the opposite. <laughs> yeah. How is that the opposite? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously a classic. So it features only the six mm-hmm. cast and one guest star, which doesn't happen until the very end and so this is also something kind of common in bottle episodes so sometimes there will be short scenes that kind of bookend the episode so like something really quick at the beginning and end Mm -hmm. but the primary content meets all the other criteria of a bottle episode so in this the one where no one's ready it's like entirely a bottle episode until the credits and so at the credits they're actually at the function oh okay and so there's a guest star that plays the role of one of the professors that Ross works with. And he comes over to congratulate Ross. So that's often like, sometimes there'll be something different going on in the opening and closing credits, but the primary portion of Mm -hmm. the episode will be the bottle, the bottle episode. The one where no one's ready was still well received that the producers decided to have a bottle episode in every season for the rest of the show. I couldn't confirm a bottle episode in every single season, but there were definitely a bunch. And some of them had like legitimately only the six friends. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely nobody else. For example, the one on the last night in season six, which is the night uh, before Chandler moves in with Monica and Rachel moves out. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the one with Monica's thunder. And so this is what's unique about this is that it actually was the season seven premiere. So usually bottle episodes aren't a premiere or a finale. Right. Because you put more into that to make it, you know, big and flashy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a seven season premiere. Oh, cool. It was like right after Chandler proposes to Monica. And so mm-hmm. they're all getting ready to go out and celebrate. And she catches Ross and Rachel kissing in the hallway. And she's like upset that they're going to steal her engagement thunder. Right. Then everyone finds out about it. and becomes yeah. a thing. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But there's. Like, it's all filmed on the main set of their apartments in real time. There's no other cast. Interesting. Yeah. Another really great episode that I love from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. Great show. Called The Box. And it's from season five. It's one of the highest rated episodes of their show and one of the highest rated television episodes of that year, which I think was 2018, like in television. Cool. This features, it does have a guest star, which is a little bit unusual because that's money, Mm -hmm. but it only features a really small portion of the main cast. It doesn't have the whole ensemble. So it features detectives, Jake and Holt, Mm -hmm. and they spend the night interrogating Philip Davidson, who is played by Sterling uh, K. Brown. (gasps) Oh, I remember this one. Mm -hmm. This is a really good one. 
Yeah, Sterling K. Brown is a dentist, and they right. accuse him of murdering his partner. So the whole thing takes place in the precinct, and it's just Jake and Holt interrogating the dentist. Mm-hmm. And like, there, there's no Amy, there's no Terry Crews or mm-hmm. Gina or anybody. Like, there's there's nobody else except for the dentist, and his the lawyer makes an appearance for a little while. And so that does, it really develops a lot for Jake and Holt, their like father-son dynamic that Jake's mm-hmm. always trying to develop. So there's a lot of like really great character development there. And also Sterling K. Brown was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award oh, cool. for his performance for Outstanding Guest Actor. So it's like, it, it was very well received and critically mm-hmm. acclaimed. It had a slightly different tone because to make the interrogation aspect feel real, they were a little bit lighter on the jokes than they usually were. Mm-hmm. But it meant that the jokes they did have, like, really delivered. Mm -hmm. So the only part that breaks from the bottle episode is at the very, very end, when they're done with the interrogation, they they caught him, they got a confession out of Sterling K. Brown. Jake and Holt go to leave the precinct because they're done. And it turns out they were there all night, that it's now the next morning. So Boyle, the, like, best friend of Jake, comes into the precinct and is like, no, guys, it's a brand new day. And so they just turn around and they go inside and go back, go to, back work. to work. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he makes a very brief appearance at the end. So that basically that's five people out of like a really giant ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. it's a really well done, like really deep episode for this sitcom show. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's also Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Bad. Fantastic show. In the third season, they had an episode called Fly. As in an insect, bug, fly, not flying, like a okay. or a bird. And so it features the two main characters and takes place in their secret laboratory where they cook crystal meth. So Walt and Jesse are trapped inside their meth lab with a fly. <laughs> and like that's the entire hour long episode. And this fly is causing them so much stress. <laughs> so it's like cutting into the tension between their characters and it's also jeopardizing the purity of their meth. And so the whole episode is just these two people in the fly. I don't remember this, but I want to go back and rewatch it. <laughs> yeah, now I want to rewatch <laughs> it's been it. Years but like, since I've watched that show. Oh, it's been like yeah. five or six years since and I've seen The producers specifically note that they like budget constraint was the foundation of this episode it wasn't for like artistic creativity that's hilarious but that you know they they have a great staff of writers and producers and so they made it work really well and so it turned out to be one of the series highlights nice (laughs) so over the course of the evening they go through like every human emotion and so they experience obsession nihilism introspection and guilt Nice. Excellent. Among many other things. The series sure. creator, Vince Gilligan, said that, like reflecting on the bottle episode, that it allowed for a slower pace and a deeper exploration of character traits and motives, um, which, as we mentioned before, is one of the benefits that you can get if you do these episodes well. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. He argues that if you don't have those quieter episodes in the middle, then like those big flashy episodes have less impact. Like you I need agree. to have yeah, you true. need to have those lows that set a slower pace in order to have 
like really meaningful highs. Mm-hmm. If every episode is like crazy off the wall shenanigans, it kind of yeah, it defeats the purpose, loses its impact. Yeah, yeah. they don't be, they don't, they're not memorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my next example is the one that introduced me to the, the bottle, bottle episode. episode. Nice. Well, I had seen most of these before, but I didn't recognize them right, for right, what right. they were. Like they didn't have mm-hmm. meaning to me. But within the last week or so, my roommate and I were watching Community, which I believe I've mentioned. I love before. Community. We actively binging. Yes. I've seen like and one in season watch more. two, episode you really eight, should. which is called Cooperative Calligraphy. Okay. This is a very meta example of a bottle episode. In some cases, as I mentioned, producers or like showrunners will make a bottle episode just for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's kind of like an Easter egg. Like, will people notice or right. realize or like, will they not even know that this was anything special? In this case, they straight up announce at the beginning that they're doing a bottle episode. Hmm. <laughs> and so I didn't know that like they, they say this and I was like, like, what are they talking about? So what happens is in this episode, there was a puppy parade happening on the campus. So everybody wants to go see this puppy parade. But Annie, um, one of the other main characters in the study group, she won't let anyone leave the study hall until she finds her pen that went missing. And she thinks somebody stole it. So she locks everybody into the study hall. And so the entire episode takes place with the study group locked inside their study hall. (laughs) Amazing. And yeah, but at the beginning, so she's like, nobody's going like nobody's leaving until I find my pen. We're all staying here until it's resolved. And Abed, who is a character that is very like pop culture oriented. I love him. He says, this feels like a bottle episode. (laughs) And then also later says, I hate bottle episodes <laughs> because of how historically like they're cheap and not well done. Right. Right. And so like, uh, this is very in character for Abed because he is the character that always finds the parallels between what they're doing and movies and television. Mm. So he'd be like, this is just like from Die Hard or like, this yeah. is like Braveheart, like whatever. Like he's always making connections yes. to pop culture. So it's very in character that he would be the one to point out that this is a bottle episode. Yep. But it's also a little bit out of character that Jeff also points this out. So Jeff is played by Joel McHale, and he's kind of like the leader of the study hall group. He calls up his date that he was supposed to be meeting to cancel on her because he's now locked inside inside the study hall. So he tells her that he can't make it to their date because they're doing a bottle episode. (laughs) And then he like slams his phone down and they get to it and so that was when i was like my roommate and i were like what what are they why do they keep mentioning bottle episode like what is that and so that's when i looked it up and i was like this is really cool i never noticed like i've seen all these episodes of friends and i've seen the episode of breaking bad and i never noticed yeah Yeah. about them right for jeff this is out of character because he doesn't usually play into those tv tropes that abed does and he always kind of like is sometimes annoyed by Abed always oh, yeah. making TV like connections. So it was really unique that like twice at the beginning of the episode they're telling you a little right. bit breaking this is going like the to be a bottle episode. episode. Oh, it's hundred exactly. percent breaking yeah. the fourth wall. Next, I'm just going to go to a few examples of bottle episodes in animated television because Yay! they are not exempt. Hmm. 
I was surprised to see at first examples in like animated TV shows, but I guess it also makes sense because it just like in I don't I don't want to say real TV, but in live, live television. Mm-hmm. I understand that like making other sets in animated television is also expensive, like those backdrops and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And limiting the yeah, characters like, involved. The yeah, to actors. make those frames. Yeah, to get in the voice actors. Like there's definitely reasons why right. it is money to do bottle episodes for animated shows. But like when I first saw that, that kind of surprised me. Mm-hmm. So I only have a few. There's from Archer, which is a show I love, although I haven't love seen Archer. the whole series. Mm-hmm. But in season six, there's an episode called Vision Quest. And this features all seven, or it features seven of the eight major cast members. I don't remember which one isn't there. Seven of the eight major cast members are stuck in an elevator in real time. And uh, because they're trapped, the riders, this is kind of like a parallel to the episode of Breaking Bad where they're like trapped with the fly mm-hmm. and how it goes through all of their like emotions emotions and psyche. So trapped in this elevator, all of the cast revert to their truest and rawest selves. Hmm. They toss all rules of civility to the wayside. And by the end of the episode, Archer has fired his gun in the elevator. <laughs> Pam nice. has peed in a bottle <laughs> and Cyril is masturbating. Oh, Okay. And so this is really unique for Archer because for those of you who don't know, Archer as an animated series is like a spy, an animated spy show. And so a lot of the episodes have like action sequences mm-hmm. and like fancy flashy spy missions. And um, it has like a really unique animation style. But by doing a bottle episode, they're able to show that like even for an animated show, it's the characters Mm -hmm. and each of their like unique characteristics that really make and define the show. That's why people come back to watch it is because of the characters Mm -hmm. and not because of the. Yeah, I get that. Not because of the spy storylines. And there is also from Rick and Morty. So this is an example I have not seen because I don't watch Mm -hmm. that show. I just started watching it. I've seen a handful of episodes. Yeah. In season three, they have an episode called Rick's D Minutes. And also for those of you who don't know, Rick and Morty is a sci-fi animated comedy show. And in this episode, Rick and Morty watch Cable from Other Dimensions. So they're just like sitting in their living room and they're watching television linked to Other Dimensions. Well, some of the other characters are watching, they have like virtual, uh, like VR goggles on and they're watching themselves in alternate realities. Weird. Yeah. But so it all takes place like in the house and it also gets really deep into their characters because especially the group, uh, Jerry, Beth and Summer, who are watching the alternate reality versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. They're like really shaken to the core and disturbed by what they're learning about themselves in these alternate realities. A journal or website called Geek Syndicate gave the episode a five out of five and said that Rick's D Minutes is without a shadow of a doubt as close to a perfect 20 minutes of television as I think we may ever get. Damn. Nice. So very highly critically acclaimed episode. I'm going to go back and watch that one now. And lastly, Teen Titans Go which is also a show that I haven't seen. Yeah, I've never even heard of that. I've seen a few episodes of Teen Titans yeah. when I was younger. Mm-mm. It 
this I'm ending on another like meta example, like community. Mm -hmm. So this is an instance where they intentionally recognize that they are developing a bottle episode. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from season three and it's called bottle episode. (laughs) Nice. It's, Plot centers. I didn't go into a lot of background. I don't really know like what the story of Teen Titans Go is. Like teen superheroes. Yeah. Okay. But so the plot centers around the main characters are trapped in a literal glass bottle. (laughs) Oh. It kind of um they intentionally do like all of the cliches of a bottle episode. So one of the aspects of it is that it's also a clip show. So while they're trapped in the little glass bottle, they pass the time by reminiscing mm-hmm. about previous episodes. Sure. Nice. Now you have a clip show out of it. Yeah. And also they break the fourth wall multiple times. Mm-hmm. So their dialogue specifically references how expensive it is to for, produce television shows, <laughs> needing to give production staff break on their exhaustive schedules. And the need to fill episodes that fall through. So they're really just like deliberately spelling out for you what right, sure. yeah, a bottle episode. Interesting. And yeah, so I haven't seen all of the animated ones, but I thought it was just like really cool that they even do it at all because I wouldn't have expected that would be a necessity. Yeah, I didn't even about think it. About that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the animated shows, there's examples of potentially doing it on a budget i don't know what all their motivations are but then also just doing it for the sake of doing it like for the fun of highlighting the trope right yep and so those are bottle episodes so the next time that you're watching television and you notice that which is all the time these days all the time yeah Mm -hmm. and if you're 20 minutes into an episode and you notice that you know they haven't gone anywhere they've all been sitting in the same living room or in the same dining room or you're thinking we're so and so yeah and certain characters are missing or you're noticing that it's all the same day you're watching a bottle episode those are usually highlights of a bottle episode very cool that's so interesting i hate that you stole that from me (laughs) did you know that tracy i did not i didn't i didn't steal it from you she just i almost offered it to you and then decided not to (laughs) what a jerk (laughs) What it was really jerk. fun to do a segment that wasn't like a chronological story. It was very yep. fun to put together. <laughs> Welcome to my life. All right. Fly me to the moon. Fly me to the moon. Let me dance did- among the stars. Yes. Oh. Definitely Did you a know song. That stuff when you put that title. <laughs> that was a song. Yeah, that's why I called it that. Oh. Yeah, that's the song. <laughs> Isn't there something about? Uh, well, I mean, that was Mars. literally. Yeah. yeah. Let me dance among. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm returning to a topic that I haven't hit on in a while, and that is birds. 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 <laughs> Well, I mean, they're not real, so I can see why. Like, why would you go? Why would them? you waste your time on it? Yeah. Well, nowadays we know that birds aren't real, but Before we're going to go that. back to the days when birds were real. Mm, mm. Nowadays, we understand that different species of birds 
migrate during different times of year to an environment that is more hospitable to them, either for food or for climate or what have you. We kind of understand today why that happens. We kind of take that knowledge for granted, I think. Like, do you have any memory of when you learned that birds migrate? Like, it's just something I've always known. Like, third grade, I don't know. Yeah, like, you're just guessing. Like, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea. I've just always known that, like, birds fly away in the winter and they come back in the summer or whatever, spring. Sure. Yeah. But there was a time back in the, like, way back machine. We'll, We'll talk about how way back in just a moment. Okay. People didn't really understand what was going on when the birds would just disappear. Like, suddenly the birds are gone, and they're like, what happened? So to kind of try to explain this anomaly of disappearing birds, they came up with some rather absurd and grossly inaccurate theories to try to explain <laughs> this. Great. So let's go back Perfect. to the time when birds were real and talk about some of these ridiculous theories that they had. Starting in the 4th century, so way, way back machine, to Aristotle. That is way back. Aristotle had multiple theories about where the birds went. I feel like just, I don't know, are you allowed to have multiple theories? Because then you're assuming then that one of them isn't true. Well, he applied some of these theories to different birds, different Uh, species. gotcha, gotcha. So... He thought that some of the larger birds migrated, which is like, correct. Stop there. Like, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> nope. You've got Spoiler, it. Spoiler, he did not stop there. He did not. But he would notice that some of the larger birds would disappear and they were kind of, you know, fatter, fuller. And then when they reappeared, they would be thinner, which is because birds tend to bulk up before they migrate to, you know, store up for their journey. And he had talked to travelers who people who had gone to other parts of the world. For example, he had talked to people who had been in the Nile River region and had seen Mm -hmm. cranes during the times of year that the cranes had disappeared in Greece where he was. So he kind of put it together like, oh, they they fatten up in Greece, they go down to the Nile River, they come back and they're thinner. Like, he figured it out. Okay. But he thought on that only applies to cranes or larger species in general. (laughs) But on the whole, he thought that long-distance migration like this was highly implausible, especially for smaller birds. Like, he didn't think a smaller bird could make that kind of a journey. So he thought that this was just a unique feature to some larger birds. Smaller birds, he thought, hibernated. He didn't have any reports from other people around the world showing that these birds were showing up during the times that they disappeared where he was. So he assumed that they would just like hibernate in trees with or in holes in the ground. Yeah, like bears do. Way up in the trees with the bumblebees. But it's like, did you, did you talk to everyone who's seen every part of the world? Like he didn't, he has a small sample size. People weren't traveling the world like yeah. they are now. Sure. So how do you know they weren't just somewhere you couldn't see? But you can't just like Google the bird and then find out that somebody took pictures of it. Right. On the opposite side of the world. So from his small sample size of knowledge from other people that traveled, he did not find anyone who had seen like the smaller birds, like swallows in other areas of the world. So mm-hmm. he assumed they hibernated in trees and in holes. There is okay. one single species of bird called the common poor will that hibernates, but beyond that, birds don't birds don't hibernate. That's it. I didn't know there was any bird that hibernates. Yeah, that's just interesting one. actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just the one. All right. He thought that some birds would transform 
into other birds. Oh, during different parts of like during the winter, like oh, Transfiguration like and Harry Potter, they would just like poof, like mol- like become another molts, bird. Sure, meld into another bird. Yeah. So he thought that this bird called the Red Start would turn into a robin in the winter and then back in the summer because red starts migrated to Africa while robins migrated to Greece. So he saw one bird disappearing and one reappearing. So he was like, oh, clearly it's the same bird that just like (laughs) transformed, (laughs) goes into a cocoon one day and comes out, reemerges as a different bird. (laughs) (laughs) That's not great. So his theories just got more and more ridiculous. Should have stopped at the migration. Yeah, you were doing so well. He was, yeah. There was this guy called Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder, yeah. You know him? I know him. You've heard of him? I've never heard of him. I've never heard of him. So he believed that the pygmies, which were a a race of tiny humans in Africa, essentially had this like eternal battle with cranes. Why? Why indeed? Why would they do that? So, quote, in the springtime, their entire band, mounted on the backs of rams and she-goats and armed with arrows, goes in a body down to the sea and eats the cranes, eggs, and chickens, and that this outing occupies three months. So he figured every month, every year, for three months of the years, they would, like, mount rams and goats and ride down to the, to the but- ocean and, like, battle with the cranes and eat them. But why? <laughs> I don't feel like my question is getting answered here. <laughs> this um, belief is also expressed in Homer's The Iliad. Quote, Shriek of cranes down from heaven, who flee the winter and the terrible rains, and fly off to the world's end, bringing death and doom to the pygmy men, as they open fierce battle at dawn. So cranes, I mean, in reality, okay. go between Europe and Africa, but... For some reason, they thought that there was an endless battle of the pygmies versus the cranes every every winter. I that's okay. I, that's all I got. I don't know why or spring rather during the spring, but battling the cranes. I'm just just imagining like these people like riding in on goats. Yeah, like with, like their arrows <laughs> pulled and like you know their battle cries going, and there's these giant cranes by the sea just. Puffing their wings out, getting ready to fight, and just battle cries and cause. Like, why? (laughs) I don't, like... (laughs) What did the cranes ever do to you? Agreed. Uh, They just wanted to eat them. I don't know. Going forward a little bit to medieval times, we found bestiaries, which is essentially a, like, zoological encyclopedia, just like this book composium of all these different animals. So that's actually, I think, how I know, how I knew Pliny the Elder, because he did, like, an natural history encyclopedia oh okay and so he was from like the roman i think he was did you mention where he was from um, he was like roman i, didn't, I think he was roman i didn't i don't I didn't yeah he did like a natural history encyclopedia yeah. which is probably like where he documented his thoughts on migration amongst many many other things yeah um so sure. i think that's how i knew about him he just like documented all of his nature thoughts in an encyclopedia yeah not all not all of them were on the nose yeah, great. <laughs> in medieval time, there were these bestiaries that we found, and they stated that the barnacle goose grew on trees over water, which would explain how these geese showed up seemingly out of nowhere when they migrated to the area. 
So they were birds and plants. What? They, they were plants? <laughs> I mean, they were birds that grew uh-huh. on trees. Okay. Which also meant, conveniently, that Catholics, who were not allowed to eat meat other than fish on Fridays, could eat goose because it's not, it didn't hatch from an egg. It's, it grew on a tree. So it, that feels like a technicality, it's a but <laughs> it's a vegetable. <laughs> well, also, <laughs> cows and pigs don't hatch from eggs. I don't know. Well, somehow because it was not like born of another animal, it grew off of a tree. So it's not like born from another species. It's not born from another live animal. Therefore, it doesn't count as meat. I guess it's a vegetable. So you can eat goose. Yeah. I mean, we're all about the (laughs) loopholes in Christianity. So, so I believe that. What's the most convenient? I mean, I don't understand why fish is allowed and meat is not otherwise, but. Also, wait. So wait, they were saying they could eat fish because. They were born from eggs. I don't know. I don't know why Catholics can eat fish, but not other. But all other birds animals. are born from eggs. No, they're saying because the goose did not come from an egg, that's why oh. they could eat it. I don't know why oh. they can eat fish. Okay, Tracy, maybe you can weigh in on that. Yeah, I don't I know either. No, I, I no. as a re- resident recovering Catholic, I was just told that I was allowed to. Maybe do it. they also just straight up didn't know where fish came from. Also, this super was not They're relevant to me at fish. any point in my life. That's right, you can't eat fish regardless. <laughs> as we've learned today, <laughs> this was also super not relevant. Breaking news. <laughs> okay, great. Glad my best friends know this shit. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Moving forward to the 16th century, there was Oleus Magnus, who is a cartographer and a writer. He theorized that swallows disappeared in the winter because they buried themselves in the clay at the bottom of rivers. So they would just like dive bomb into the water. So they were also like okay. aquatic. Go bury themselves in the mud of the riverbank and then reemerge in the spring because they would like it'd warm up and they would come up and be around again. They would these sound like phoenixes, less so like other <laughs> creatures. That also sounds like a form of hibernation. Essentially, so but they hibernate specifically. But very specifically yes. in the mud of a mm-hmm. riverbank. Okay. Uh, in actuality, these birds travel to tropical climates and pick up coconuts. Yeah. <laughs> They're just having pina coladas. <laughs> Let's not let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yes. But he also was on board with the barnacle goose vegetable theory. Barnacle goose! He jumped on that bandwagon as well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Moving a little bit forward beyond that, we're going to the 17th century now with Charles Morton. Okay. He was an English minister and scientist. And he believed, and this is probably my favorite, that every year birds flew to the moon and back. Aww. So he of wasn't course. wrong with the migration. He was just wrong with... The location <laughs> where they <Aww>. went. <laughs> and also understanding the yes. Well, this is 16th century. We didn't know as much about space. Or 17th century, rather. We didn't know as much about space back then. But he estimated the journey would be 179,712 miles. That's a very exact like number for it is. this. It is very specific. In actuality, the moon is between... 226,000 and 252,000 miles away, varying based on its elliptical orbit. That sounds like, what was his number? It wasn't like... 179,000. So he wasn't like horribly off. He was was in the ball. It wasn't the difference between like, yeah, it wasn't like 100,000. He was in like the right, you know, 
magnitude. Correct. Yeah. Order magnitude. of magnitude. Yes. But still, it was farther than he thought. He figured that they flew at 125 miles per hour, which is really fucking fast for a bird. What was the one in your segment, like the messenger pigeon that flew like 60 miles an hour? What was that? Oh, I don't remember how fast it flew. I thought that was fast. I think I thought yeah. it was like 60 miles per hour. And I was like, that's impossible. But I don't remember. I can look it up, but I don't remember. But yeah, he thought it was 125 miles per hour and then it took him 60 days. So two months to get to the moon. And like, how many months are they gone? Like, even if they're gone for half the year. By the time they get there, they turn around and come back. Two months to get there. Right. Two months to get back. They hang out for a couple months at the most. Like, that's a really long journey to not stay that long. I agree. Nowadays, we know that to escape Earth's velocity, you need to be traveling at 25,000 miles per hour, which is 200 times okay. faster than the birds were supposedly flying. But sure. Yeah. They flew to the moon. Were the birds on rockets? No. <laughs> Not were that we're flying aware of. On, on their own wings. He believed that they lived off of their body fat during the flight, which is pretty much true, actually. Birds will... Okay, yeah, that's not entirely the migration, wrong. Yeah, they get fat and they store and, that energy. Yeah, exactly. He also believed that they slept most of their flight, which is not true. Birds will actually doze off for like a few seconds at a time when they're flying long distance like that, but they will not sleep the whole Wait, time. Wait, so he thought they were sleep flying? Yes. I never thought about that. Yeah. But they so do Bert, doze like, off for a few seconds at a time. Huh but they don't like sleep the whole way. How much sleep do birds need in general? Like we need like supposedly like eight hours. Yeah, I have no night. idea. I'm just wondering like, so like, but so I, I guess I don't expect you to have. Well, I know like dolphins supposedly will be like, they'll be moving around and swimming in their pods, but like half their brain is turned off and that's them like sleeping quote unquote. So like animals can sleep and move and do Still things. Be active. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, I guess I just never realized like yeah, they do sleep. birds when they fly like south for the winter whether or not they ever stop and when they sleep and do they not stop at all and just like sleep intermittently as they fly? I'm not I sure. I never thought about that. Maybe. They at least doze off a little bit and they're in their flight so they don't need to stop and fully sleep because huh. they get some rest in flight. Hopefully they That's don't all crazy. sleep at the same time. You know how they're kind of in their V. Hopefully, like whoever's in the in the lead. <laughs> there's, there's a designated like you you sleep depending on your position in the V. Maybe <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they're all asleep and they just fly into a mountain or something. Oh, Who's steering the ship? Womp womp. Some species would seem to disappear entirely. So he assumed that they just flew off into space somewhere. They were gone. And so, like, they became extinct. Is, is that I guess he's saying, I don't know if they, they disappeared for longer than he expected, or uh, if they just disappeared from his region, and he assumed that, therefore, maybe it was the climate was changing, and then they moved somewhere else. I don't know. But if a, if a bird disappeared for an extended period of time, longer than he expected them to, or didn't come back, he assumed they just flew off into space and were gone. And now they just live on the moon. Like, or somewhere else in space. <laughs> yep, there you go. Moonbirds. His reasoning, quote, Now, whither should these creatures go unless it were to the moon? Yeah, like, I mean, there's, there's nowhere there's else in the world they could go? Else. You can't argue with that logic. I mean, you can. I mean, I would argue they could go to the center <laughs> of the Earth. True. Very true. Maybe they're in the hollow. 
And because no one sees where these birds go, therefore they must leave Earth. I mean, again, did he talk to everyone on Earth? Yeah, to say, nobody like, that you've encountered or no one that, yeah, communicated you with. You don't know anyone who's seen these birds in your small circle because you're designated to one part of the world and can't like fly to the other end of the world. So Right. But therefore, because you don't know where they go, they go to the moon. Yes. When sailors reported seeing birds at sea, they would say that they came and landed on their ship like from above, not from the horizon. So that must mm. mean they're coming from space. Because they come down. Yup. Mm-hmm. This guy, Morton, he disagreed with the theory that they buried themselves in the mud because he felt that if they did that, the birds would lack oxygen and the temperatures would be too cold. Th- that sounds legitimate. I mean... They're not going to survive in the mud. But, I mean, the moon... Pretty fucking cold. Okay. Pretty fucking lacking in oxygen. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> um, and you believe that in space... The birds did not experience air resistance and were not affected by gravity. So, to be fair, to be fair, fair, people in this time generally thought that other planets and the moon were inhabited, like that they thought that there was vegetation and creatures there because they believed that God made the solar system. So, why would he make these planets and these celestial bodies if they were not, if they were just going to be barren? That's actually the opposite, I think, of what I would thought. I would think that people would think that we were just very special. Yeah, apparently not. Apparently they thought that (laughs) God created all of this, so why would he create these just rocks in the sky that did nothing? So therefore they thought that God created all of these things and created life on all of these things. So therefore there's something on the moon for these birds. There's vegetation there. There's water there. There's an ecosystem there for these birds to participate in. So. Yeah. Okay. Nowadays, we know that birds aren't real anyway. So I'm assuming that seasonal birds that disappear, that, you know, historically have disappeared during migration, they probably just put them in storage during winter and bring them back out. (laughs) They recharge their batteries. This is going well. (laughs) The end. Woo! But, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) When do you know when we, like, really settled on the truth? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) On science. (laughs) I tried to, like, look up, like, when did we figure out migration of birds for real? And it's just, it's like a, it was a long developed process. There's no, like, date, but I don't, I don't know. I I guess we also figured it out in the third century, but just, like only applied it to one bird right. and then came up with a bunch of other stupid theories. Yeah, I mean, now we can do things like put trackers on birds and for that matter, other species like whales and sharks and other creatures that we want to see where they go um, during different seasons. So like now it's kind of, again, common knowledge that certain species move to different parts of the world during different times. You know, the whales come here in the winter to give birth and then they leave when the waters start to warm up. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's... We, this is just common knowledge now because scientists can track them and it's just people mm-hmm. know these things now. But I, I didn't look up. I started to. I got bored. So I didn't look up the truth of <laughs> when and how we discovered it because it just didn't seem as entertaining. Perfect. So the end. <laughs> so if you also are bored and don't want to look up things because you <laughs> rely on other people to tell you the truth, which 
good for you if we're your source for that. We're nothing but well-established facts <laughs> and perfectly researched segments. Correct. <laughs> you can listen to all of Harpy Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Spotify, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Wherever you listen, please, please, please rate us and leave us a positive review. Five stars. Highly recommend. Also, if you have stories you think we might like or you just want to say hello because you think we're awesome. Which you should. Hearing from you. We will cherish every email that comes in. We do. Uh, (laughs) You can email us at harpyhourpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at harpyhourpod. Like us, share us, tell all of your friends. Spread the word. We need more listeners. Spread the word. We're very popular in Sweden. Are we? We are. Okay. I tweeted it. (laughs) (laughs) We are also on Patreon. We have different tiers. There are different goodies, stickers. You can do an AMA session with us. You can recommend, or not recommend, you can give us a topic that we have to talk about. And there's extra content like G&T, which is our goofs and tangents. So check us out on Patreon. Donate to us to keep us on the air. Thanks for listening. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. bye.